Luke 24, verse 1 says, Now on, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Let's pray. Father, these truly are awesome words to remember as we look back in history and, Father, recognize um, the great love of the Lord Jesus in giving himself for our sins, but then rising again victorious. And today is the day we especially celebrate and remember what a great victory as Jesus was conquered death and rose victorious and as a living Savior extends to us the gift of life, eternal life, abundant life, the assurance of living forever with him through the forgiveness of sins he's offered to us on the cross. And Father, we so, we're so thankful for him today. And Father, we're thankful that we could come together today as a church family and worship you, remember you, to, to thank you, to learn of you. And Father, as we look into your word once again today, we pray that we would understand what you have for us, that we'd understand your love for us, that we'd understand your plan for us. And Father, that your word might become that which directs all life and practice in our lives. And so we pray today that you would be our teacher and guide, open our understanding now as we look into your word together. In Jesus' name. If you want to turn with me, if you will, back to Luke chapter 4. Where we'll begin this morning, Luke chapter 4. You know, there are six words that Jesus uttered that are of utmost importance and to the point in regards to his life, his death, and, and burial, and resurrection. They're really two three-word phrases. One uttered on what we call Good Friday, the day he was crucified. The other uttered uh, on the resurrection day. Actually, Jesus didn't utter them, but uttered in regards to Jesus. The first is on John 19.30, he tells us, it is finished. It is finished. The second uttered of him, in regards to him, here in, in our text was, he is risen. Simple words, to the point, but powerful words, words full of meaning. And for these two phrases summarize the efforts of God's God to rescue men and women, bringing them hope for life and eternity. And that's what God wants to bring to us, hope. We've sang a lot about hope this morning, but we need to understand that hope in the Bible is not the same kind of hope we think of today. We have a hope-so hope today. I hope I get what I want for Christmas type of hope. Hope in the Bible is an assurance. It's a confidence because it's based upon the person of God, the promise of God, and the work of God. It is a sure hope. It is more of a sure anticipation of what's going to happen, of good things from the hand of God. And, that's the, and that hope we find in the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? We find it in these two statements. It is finished. That means he paid in full sin's debt upon the cross. He died for you and I on that cross when he offered one sacrifice for sins forever. He is risen. It means he rose victoriously. He's a living Savior. And every other religious leader around the world that's ever existed is still in the grave. You can find their bones in the ground. But not the tomb. The tomb was empty. And even though the disciples weren't prepared for that, they found the tomb empty because he is risen. He rose victoriously. And it's on these two things that we find 
hope for a lost and broken world, a sure hope, a confident hope, an expectation of all that God has provided and promised to us in his love and grace. And it's really pertinent today because we live in a world without hope, don't we? We live in a world that's lost. We live in a world that's, that's broken, that is empty, where people are looking every, in every corner of, of their existence to find some type of meaning and purpose and hope and rescue. And in Luke chapter 4, what we really find here is the Bible tells us that that hope is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it describes the essence of his rescue plan. And if you pick it up with me in verse 14, here in Luke 4, it says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so we find the Lord Jesus here in the synagogue taking his turn to read, and he reads this passage in Isaiah, taken from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And when Jesus closed the book and sat down and said, this, today the scripture is fulfilled, he was in essence claiming that he was the deliverer. He was the one who was sent. He was the one this passage was talking about. He was claiming to be the one that God had sent to him. Now, it's also significant if you look at Isaiah 61, one and two in your own time, that there's more to the story there. There's more to the verses there. Jesus stopped really in the middle of a verse, middle of a, of a paragraph when he closed the book. And that's because the next phrase in those verses says, the day of vengeance of our God. But what Jesus was saying by closing the book at that time is it wasn't time for vengeance yet. It wasn't time for God to judge the sinful world yet. He closed the book before that time and what he was referring to is this, this is the time for help, for rescue, for healing, for deliverance. That's what's listed in this passage. Vengeance will come later, but the acceptable year of the Lord, as mentioned here, was the time for Jesus to provide salvation for mankind. And that's what we celebrate today, isn't it? In our celebration. We especially remember, and of course as believers we remember it every day, the great love of God and his willingness to go to the cross and raise again for our salvation. And so we find here some detail. And it's amazing how this prophecy written way back in Isaiah's time, well before the Lord Jesus, uttered by him here as the fulfillment of this prophecy is so relevant to us today, some 2,000 years later. And the first thing he mentions here is that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. He's the chosen one to preach the gospel to the poor. That's the first thing he mentions. I'm to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, there's no doubt in Jesus' earthly ministry, he ministered to the poor, but the tone of this passage and of Jesus' application of this passage is spiritual. And he's talking about spiritual poverty, not financial poverty. And so you can say, well, who is he describing? He says, when he talks about the poor, he mentions in the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, those who are poor before God. And who is he describing? All of us, in reality. 
because the Bible describes us as being sinners. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And before God, we stand morally and spiritually bankrupt. In fact, in that book of Romans, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, God discusses three classes of people. He discusses immoral people. He discusses moral people, the upright. And he discusses religious people. And he comes to this conclusion in chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that does good. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. That's quite a description of mankind. And God says that because way back in the garden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, ate of that fruit they were not, they became sinners. They died to God because God told them, the day you eat, you're going to surely die. And they died spiritually. They died in their relationship to God. They became separated because from God because of their sins, so much so that in Isaiah 64, God describes even the good things we do like this. He says, but we all are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses, the good things we do, are like filthy rags. That's before God. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Throughout the Bible, we're just, we're just, mankind is described as being separated from God, hopeless, hopelessly lost to God because of sin. That's our standing because we're born children of Adam. We're born sinners separated from God. And sin in our lives has created problems that need to be solved in humanity. And that's because sin has both interrupted and corrupted our lives. It, sin has interrupted our relationship with God. And we need reconciliation. We need the forgiveness of sins because we've sinned against our creator. We rebelled against him. We've, we've disobeyed him. We discluded him. We ignore him. And the Bible says, as a result of that, in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And sin has also corrupted us. We need help. You look around us, and that's not hard to believe, to see the corruption of sin in our lives. Because sin has infiltrated every, all facets of our lives. It's infiltrated our reasoning, our attitudes, our behaviors, all attitudes of our lives. And that's why we do need help. And that's one of the things that Jesus came, when he came, he came to rescue us. The fact that we've lost that relationship with God and we've become corrupted because of sin. It's interesting how the Bible provides explanation for why we are like we are. Why the world is like it is. It's because sin has entered our existence. God didn't design it this way. Romans 5.12 says, For it was by one man sin entered the world. And so Jesus came to preach the good news, that's the gospel, to the poor or the poor in spirit. And that's all of us. We're all needy. We're all separated from God because of sin, and we need to be restored. We need to be forgiven. We need to be reconciled. And that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's the good news. That's the gospel. The word gospel simply means good news. And we know in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul says, I'm going to declare to you the gospel. And in verses 3 and 4, he says this, For I delivered... To you, first of all, that which I also received, Paul had embraced this message, this good news, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Those holidays we celebrate, the, the, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, is the essence, the simplicity of the message of the good news. And that's what Jesus came to preach. It was simple. And what's into, what, what you love about this passage is Jesus didn't, didn't fulfill the role that many picture people picture him as doing. He didn't come with a big stick to whack people, to get after people. 
in his anger and vengeance. He came to rescue. And the first thing he came to rescue was to preach the good news, that there is salvation today, that Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And that's why the words, it is finished, are so important. Because when he died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the world completely, once and for all and forever. In Hebrews chapter 10, he obviously says he offered one sacrifice for sins forever and sat down. And generally, when you sit down, it means the job's done. Well, for me, at my age, it means I just kind of got started. But for Jesus, it meant it was done. It was completed. It was finished. In fact, the word, it is finished, could mean paid in full. The debt of sin was paid. Our penalty was paid. He took our whipping. I think one story says he paid for that on the cross. And all God wants, wants of us is to trust him as our Savior. John 5, 24 says this, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word, the Bible, and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So that, that condemnation and that death that we experienced because Adam was, had sinned against God, and we are sinners in Adam, and we are also sinners by action, we are passed from death to life if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he paid for us in lock, stock, and barrel. That's the good news. And the good news is it's free. Can't help but think of the resurrection passage where Jesus said this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And he's not talking there about physical death, but eternal death. And then he asked the question, do you believe this? That's the good news Jesus came to present to humanity. It's the good news he presents yet today. The, the, the gospel, the good news to the poor in spirit, those who are lost before God. The second thing he says here, he says he sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Now some versions may not have it in this passage, but it's in the original Isaiah, in the original quote in Isaiah 61. Jesus says God has sent me, the spirit of God has led me to heal the brokenhearted. The brokenhearted means to be crushed in spirit, to be broken, to be shattered. And this world is filled with people that are crushed under the weight of their circum the circumstances of life, isn't there? People in despair, people that don't know where to turn. They don't have answers. They turn to money, they turn to sex, they turn to drugs, they turn to alcohol, they turn to all, all kinds of things to try to either forget their sorrows, bury their sorrows, overcome their sorrows. But Jesus is the answer, isn't it? You know, they say suicide is the leading cause of death in the United States yet today. I took this quote off the CDC website, and it says that, uh, um, that suicide is among the top nine leading causes of death for people ages 10 to 64, and the second leading cause of death for ages 10 to 14 and 25 to 34. And that's just tragic, isn't it? isn't it? To come to the point where a person takes their life. And they calculate that to be, that means there's one death by suicide every 11 minutes. Tragic. People don't have hope. We've been singing about hope. And many, many of us place our hope in ourselves and the best we can do and our ability to handle life, but Jesus says, you don't have to do that. Because Jesus is our creator. He's the author of life. He can handle life. He's already resolved the problem of the condemnation of sin. He's broken the power of sin. And he, and he came to heal those that are distraught over those circumstances, those who have violated love, broken relationships, Varying forms of abuse, looking for acceptance and affirmation for meaning and purpose. You know, the Bible says in the last day, people are going to become without natural affection. That means, in some verses, it says unloving. Well, just read the paper or the internet if you prefer. It's everywhere. 
It's, it's next door. It's down the street. Everywhere. People are living without hope, and they don't know where to turn. There's no hope of a better, term, better tomorrow. I just had someone tell me that the other day. There's just no hope. There's no compassion from people, no understanding from family. They don't know where to turn. But Jesus was sent to heal. And the Bible says of healing in his wings. It begins with us being restored to a right relationship with him. Galatians 3.26 says, For you are all the sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. First, we have to become his sons before we can enjoy his fathering, don't we? And as sons, he promises to father us in life as his sons and daughters. And he expresses that fathering through his promises in his word. And the, word's filled, the Bible's filled with promises to help and strengthen and comfort us. Hebrews 13, 5 says, He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14 says, says this, As a father pities his children. Or some versions say have compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He understands us. He remembers that we're dust. We find compassion. We find a shoulder to cry. And in Hebrews 4 it says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. You see, I remember as a, as a young person when I got myself in trouble, the last person I wanted to see was my father. You know, you hid in the barn, in the woodshed, anywhere. When dad came home from work, you were nowhere to be found because mom says, wait till your father comes home. You know, it's different with God. But God is saying here, he's the, you're the, I'm the first person you want to see. Isn't that amazing? That kind of love, compassion, understanding. We find grace and mercy and help as God seeks to dust us off and put us back on our feet and, and send us on our way. We find a God who shares our burdens. Come to me, all you late who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And there's promises in the Bible of love and acceptance, of, of peace provided, of wisdom given, of, of endurance provided, and so on and so on and so on. Promises. Because God heals what's broken. That's where, we that's where we find help. That's where we find our hope. And Jesus is our living hope. The next thing he says is to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, this phrase may have brought to mind what the Jews knew as a year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee happened every 50 years, every seven Sabbaths, and the year after the seven Sabbaths. And what it was, was a, um, a year of correction and restoration. One commentary put it this way, the main purpose of this special year was the balancing of the economic system. Slaves were set free and returned to their families. Property that was sold reverted to the original owners, and all debts were canceled. It was a God's way of, of bringing, getting things back to normal for people that had been uh, under bad circumstances. And slaves were set free. And this may come to mind. In fact, some say that the time of the Lord Jesus may have been close to that year of Jubilee. But this passage isn't speaking just about, about physical slaves, but about spiritual deliverance, because it's referring to spiritual captivity, addictive and destructive behaviors. And the world's engrossed in that type of behavior, isn't it? Even amongst Christians, we recognize the Bible says that we're weak in the flesh, according to Romans 8.3. And people often find themselves in repetitive bad behaviors, habitual behaviors, which we can't seem to escape. Substance abuses, various addictions, personal abuses, violent tempers, bad decision-making. And we become enslaved to these behaviors, and sometimes we just get to the point where we just think they're normal but they're destructive, and they do destroy. And we can't find freedom. 
They say even amongst the world's best self-help programs, various step programs, that the success rates are very low. And those that are, have the best success are those that are in a meeting every night so they can't get themselves in trouble. Well, that's not, that's not a heart change. See, Jesus gives us a heart change. Jesus frees us from those addictions, from those behaviors. Romans 6, 18 says, Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. John 8, 36 says, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And of course, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And what a relief you find in the Lord Jesus Christ that he can give you the ability to change, the ability to be freed from those enslaving behaviors that are destructive. It destroys people, it destroys families, it destroys churches, it destroys nations. And only Jesus can bring hope in that darkness. That's why God sent him. There's liberty. And at the cross of Christ, Jesus broke that power of sin that it has over us and provides us power to walk in newness of life. The next thing he says is recovery to sight to the blind. Again, though Jesus healed physical blindness in his earthly ministry, this is obvious he's referring to spiritual blindness. Blindness to the things of God, blindness to the purpose of God. And the Bible describes the world as that. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says, But even if our gospel, the good news, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. See, Satan has blinded through alternative ways of thinking, whether it's religious thinking, whether it is how we run our families, how we conduct ourselves in business, how we live our recreational lives. Jesus, Satan has blinded us to living, living in a through alternative ways and alternative means and alternative motives. And a lot of that is centered in self because as sinners, we are inherently self-centered and we like things that, that gratify me, that go the way I think they should go, that work the way that is convenient for me. And we often don't see that those things can often be destructive as well. The Bible calls it man's wisdom versus God's wisdom, which leads us nowhere. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. And in that passage, God stacks himself, his wisdom up against the, the wisest wise guys in the, in the universe and says, you know where it got you? Nowhere. Through that wisdom, you did not know God. Instead, he saves through the, through the message preached to those who believe. Of religious leaders who had the plan of salvation wrong, Jesus said this, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and the blind leaders of the blind both fall into the ditch. And we find that in our society today. A lot of people falling, blind following the blind, leading into the ditch of destruction. Jeremiah 10, 23, God says this to us, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who wants to direct his own steps. And in chapter 17, he says, Cursed is the man who, who makes flesh his arm. You see, and it's not that God is being critical of us. It's God just recognizing the real core problem. Sin has corrupted the way we think, the way we view things. And God wants to bring the light of the world to our attention. And we know Jesus is that light, isn't it? He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Paul mentioned in his testimony, his mission was to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, this is anything but a God who's condemning. A 
God who's out to get you. This is a God who wants to help. He wants to rescue. He wants to heal. He wants to save. He wants to, he wants to restore us to a right relationship with himself. And that's why this last phrase says, he set at liberty those who are oppressed. And this may be a summary statement of the previous ones because this is not proclaiming something. This is setting at liberty. He wants us to enjoy our freedom. He wants us to, to learn how to live as new creations in Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5.17. Or those who John 10.10 where Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. And that's the abundant life that he sets us free to. You see, the world thinks Christians can't do anything. They don't know how to have fun. They just live dull, dreary, you know, can't do this and can't do that kind of lives. When in reality, believers are the ones who have life. Believers have not only eternal life because they've been forgiven their sins, but life in Christ, an abundant life, real life, the way, the life the way God intended for us to live. And Jesus came to, to help us to enjoy that liberty, that freedom, even in, a, in, a, in an environment of oppression. You see, what he's saying here is that Jesus came not only to heal and to help our deepest needs, but also to send us forth into a new and full life found in a relationship with himself. Restoring what Adam and Eve lost in the garden, that harmony that, that with their God and their creator. And so even though we live in a land of oppression in a hopeless world, really that doesn't have answers for life, the Bible offers us hope. Hope in the person of Jesus Christ. I think... Matt read a verse I have here on my screen. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope. That's a sure hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Later in that chapter, he says this, Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope are in God. Everybody hopes for a brighter tomorrow. I don't care where you're at in life. But where is that hope anchored, is the question. Life has proven over and over again. History has proven to us that when we anchor our hope in ourselves, it doesn't work. Not only do we, do we never achieve the forgiveness of sins and eternal glory, that was accomplished one way through Jesus on the cross, but we live life in our own strength and our own abilities and often flounder and fail. But God wants to assure us that he can help. That's why he came. That's the glory of it is finished and he is risen. It's a glorious message. It's a message of life, of abundant life, of a full life, of a life of meaning and purpose, finding our, our, our meaning and purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ, finding strength to live and direction for life. And that's security. When our hope is anchored in the, in the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have assurance facing the future. It doesn't mean we don't have problems. We're going to have problems. We live in a problem, problematic world because of sin. But we have an anchor in that storm. We have help in that life. We have healing when we do fall and fail because of a God who loves us and he's proven that love on the cross. And even today as we celebrate the Lord's table, it's as we celebrate it every second Sunday, and it's appropriate being this being Resurrection Sunday, what we're really celebrating is the love of God, his love for his own, his rescue plan, his plan to save us, to restore us, to reconcile us, and then to help us in life, 
He's a loving father that wants to help us navigate life. You know, as parents, you know, we come to that empty nest stage when we send our kids off. We hope we prepared them and got them ready. We send them off into life. At least most of us do. It doesn't always happen that way. But God never does. He's with us always to help us navigate life and all that it brings us and all that we face. And we know that love is an everlasting love because he's proven it at the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that verse contains your name, by the way, indirectly. You might say, my name's not in that verse, but you're in the world, aren't you? For God, so you can put your name in there. God so loved the world that he gave. It's for you. And as we approach the Lord's table, I think some of the key words when Jesus instituted this remembrance feast, it was the key words are for you. My body is broken for you. My blood was spilt for you. That's why Jesus came. That's why he endured the cross. That's why he despised the shame. That's why he endured the fact that his father laid on him the iniquity of us all because it was all for you. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's table. If you turn with me to Luke 22, since we're in the book of Luke, this morning, we'll turn to the Lord's table here at the close of our service. And here in... During this week, we call the Passion Week, where Jesus instituted this remembrance. We're told in 1 Corinthians that it's a feast of remembrance, and it's a feast when we proclaim. And what that means is that we are given this Lord's table to remember him. Don't forget me, he says. Don't forget the one who not only created you, but who redeemed you, who rescued you, the one who is your help in trouble. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Never forget the great price that was paid to rescue us. But we also proclaim him. What that means is that I identify with that. And that's why the Lord's table is for believers, those who trusted Christ as their Savior, because they're proclaiming, it was my sins that were put on his back. It was my sins he died for. It was my price he paid. It was for me he died. That's what it means by proclaiming him. It was me. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of his children because I've trusted the Lord Jesus, and I'm proclaiming and claiming his love for me. Here in Luke 22, we find those verses where he says, And he took of the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. For you. It's for us. And so today, this weekend, we especially remember the tragedy of what we call Good Friday, when the world rejected Christ and hung him on the cross, when his father laid on him the iniquity of us all, accomplishing the great purposes of God, and that we celebrate as well the day of victory. He rose from the dead. The tomb's empty. And because he lives, we'll live. Because he lives, we can enjoy life. Because he lives, he can provide these services he mentions in the passage we studied today. He can heal. He can, he can save. He can set us free. And so as you approach the Lord's table, consider that. Remember what great love he has for you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful today for your great love for us, Father. You have proven it to us. But think of that love as an everlasting love, Father, as you continue to work in life, as you seek to save people from their sins and from the despair of life. 
as you take us as your children, you heal us, you help us, you deliver us, you rescue us, you set us free from those things that are destructive in our lives. And you help us to navigate the new life you've given us in Christ. And so, Father, the things we study today, may they encourage our hearts, may they instruct us in the way we should go. We pray if there's any here who do not know Jesus as their Savior, that even today they would put their faith in the one who loved them and died for them. And as we turn to this Lord's table, this remembrance feast, Father, help us to reflect on what great love you have for us. So be glorified now as we remember him together. In Jesus' name, amen.